Well, good morning, you guys. It's uh, great to be here with you. And um, I started off last service by crying. I don't intend to do that this time. So let's see if we can do a little bit better job this time. Um, I kind of have this like, you know, in your face, kind of bold to say what needs to be said, offend people kind of persona, but I'm actually like a teddy bear, really. I'm pretty soft, so I cry really easy, and um, I'll probably cry here, but we'll try not to. The only thing worse than doing this once is doing it twice, so we should have said one service today, you know, pack it in. But uh, it's been an absolute privilege and joy to uh, have planted this church and to have pastored this church, to have pastored many of you uh, for seven plus years, some of you less than that, uh, just getting to know uh, you guys and being a part of your life, leading some of you to Jesus, discipling uh, some of you, counseling some of you, cussing at some of you. It's not that far from the truth, actually. <laughs> Just ask Stuart. <laughs> um, but it's been it's been a lot of fun, and it's been a, a just a profound joy. Um, there are several farewells in the Bible, and you, you remember Jacob and his sons and that for, farewell, beautiful uh, picture there. Uh, Moses with Joshua as he just charges Joshua and sort of hands the baton onto him. Be strong and very courageous. Uh, David and Jonathan and that whole uh, affair there that um, so many think was like a homosexual thing. It's like, no, man, that was that was masculine. That was so real and genuine and from the heart. And it's it's okay to to be a guy and to show emotion and to say that you love somebody. Uh, but this farewell here in Acts chapter 20, as you see on the screen, as Paul bids farewell to the Ephesian elders, really tops them all. Uh, as he just uh, really lays out his heart, his heart for ministry, uh, and his, his desire to see them finish well, individually and corporately as a church, which is really my heart uh, for this place. And if, if any of you are visiting here today or you don't know what's going on, to, uh, this is uh, my last Sunday here uh, at Calvary Chapel, and I'm handing the baton off to, to Rory, who will continue to take this church in the direction uh, that God would have it to go. And Uh, On one hand, I'm excited for all that God has for us and for my family. And uh, I know that he's going to use us greatly in Fort Collins, Colorado, to plant uh, a new church. Um, The Lord has given me just great vision, and he's he's given me uh, the ability uh, to to just kind of start something uh, from from scratch, and as much as I don't really want to do that again because it's a lot of work, uh, I know that that's what he's calling me uh, to do. And so, on one hand, I'm excited about that. On the other hand, um, I'm scared out of my mind, really, uh, because for a number of different reasons. So, I appreciate you guys praying for us and supporting us and uh, continuing to uh, to be there. Uh, for us, as many of you have been uh, over the last uh, several years. I came uh, to Prineville about eight years ago. We started a a Bible study. I was 25 years old, and I was pretty sure that I knew everything. That, you know, I mean, I knew everything about the Bible. I knew everything about ministry. It didn't take me very long to realize that I didn't know anything. And at 33... I'm pretty convinced that I don't know much. And uh, I, I've, you know, lost some hair, gained some weight, 
in fact, you know, Rory's just kind of getting to know the short, fat, bald Ryan, you know. He doesn't know the, the really tall, I've, I've shrunk too. <laughs> he doesn't know the really tall, handsome, flowing, blonde hair. Uh, it was blonde until I was four. And then I had cool hair, just like my son Carson. And I tell Carson all the time, see this face? This is your future, my friend. <laughs> right here, buddy. He's like, no, I will not be bald. I had cool hair. I don't know what happened. It got straight, then it got dark, and then it fell out. I've got to... I'll skip that. I'll tell some of the guys later. I, I, I changed my appearance, but um, I'll, I'll show some of the guys that later. So... <laughs> Um, but there are several <laughs> farewells in the Bible, and this one I really like. And I wanted to, to teach this in my farewell here uh, at Calvary Chapel, Crook County. In Acts chapter 20, uh, starting in verse 17, Paul is coming back from his third missionary trip. And if you've got one of those cool maps in your Bible, you know that they all come with you see the, the missionary journeys of Paul. And there's actually a fourth missionary journey that he'll go on, which is him going to prison in Rome. So I don't know if that's a missionary trip or what, but it ended up being a, a great missionary trip for Paul. But this is his third trip, and he really spent most of his time, three years in Ephesus. And classic Paul, wherever he would go, it was either a revival or a riot. That, that's, that was it. That's kind of why I like Paul. You know, it was black or white, man. It was revival, people were getting saved, or it was riot and he's being killed and thrown out of the city to then be resurrected and go back in and do it again. That was Paul. He was radical. And he gets thrown out of Ephesus because some of the business dudes there don't like what he's doing. It's hurting their business. The, the idol industry is kind of going down the tubes. And they're not stoked about that, so they run him out of town. He's on his way back to Jerusalem because he's going to deliver a gift to the believers in Jerusalem who are very impoverished. And he, he wants to help them. He's collected from several different churches. And he really wants to get back before the day of Pentecost, as we see there in verse 16. And while he is on his way, he stops in Miletus, and he sends for the elders of the church of Ephesus. And this would have taken about two days to accomplish because he would have had to send messengers to Ephesus, which would have taken a day, and then a day for them to come. But I just love the fact that even though Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem, he's in a hurry, and as we're going to see, it's under some difficult circumstances. He knows that trials await him, and yet he's thinking about others. He's thinking about other people and not himself. But how easy would it have been to stop in Miletus and think, oh man, you know, Ephesus isn't that far away, but I don't really want to hassle with that. I don't really want to call those guys. I don't want to have to say goodbye. It's hard to say goodbye. Reminds me of a boys to men song. It's so hard. (laughs) Dates me a little bit. 90s, early 90s. Yeah. So... It's hard to say goodbye. And it would have been, it would have been really hard for Paul to say goodbye to these guys as it is, we're gonna see. And yet he just goes ahead and he calls them and he says, come on, I wanna talk to you guys. I wanna share my heart with you guys. Even though he was under a lot of stress and a lot of pressure and knew what was coming his way and even though it would be hard to say goodbye, he calls them and he begins to share his heart with them. Really five commitments, five things that in his time there that he was committed to. And five things, you guys, that I really have hoped in my time here that we've been committed to and that I want to continue to see this church be committed to. And the first is a commitment to God's work, verses 18 and 19. It says, when they had come to him, Paul said to them, you know from the first day that I came to Asia, so right out of the gate, 
This was made clear. The first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. Paul was radically committed to the work of God. We see that right at the beginning of his conversion to Christ in Acts chapter 9, as the Lord just reveals himself to him in such a powerful way. Jesus uh, appears to Paul. He says, look, quit persecuting me. And Paul is radically converted to faith in Christ. And what does Paul say? Where's a church that I can go sponge off of for a while? Where's somebody to serve me? What does Paul say? Lord, what can I do for you? What, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to serve you? And the rest of Paul's life was committed to his work, to serving the Lord with humility and with tears and with trials. That was his life commitment was to the work of God. And it says that they knew that because they lived among each other. They lived with each other. They lived in and around each other. There was great community. And when Paul went there, they, they hung out and they spent time together. And that's one of the weaknesses of the church today. Certainly it's a weakness of our culture. I mean, how many of us don't even know our neighbors? We don't even know their names. We, we've lived next to them for four or five years. It's like, yeah, yeah, what's that guy's name? I, something. He's He's old. Um, he's ugly, you know, what his dog poops in my yard, whatever it is, but we don't even know people that well. How often we go to church with somebody for years. It always blows me away. When I hear somebody that's been coming here for four or five years, and then they'll ask about somebody else that's been coming here for four or five years, and they're like, what's that person's name? What's, what's her name? It's like, Seriously? It's not that big of a church. You know, there's a couple hundred people and you don't know this person. You've been here for four or five years together. It's crazy. We, we don't live amongst each other. We don't live in deep community very often. And yet that's what Paul lived in with them. And there's, there's something very special about that in terms of discipleship. Because Often we define and describe discipleship as I'm the discipler, you're the disciplee. We're going to go through this little book, and we do that here, and and there's a place for that. We're going to go through this book over a Starbucks, and I'm going to tell you all of my wisdom and knowledge, and I'm going to impart that to you, and you're going to receive that, and then you're going to grow. But what is missing there is the element of exchange. The element of you seeing my weaknesses and me telling you of my failures and my struggles and how the gospel plays into that and how that I need the gospel and that we're fighting together against sin and and that we're in a battle together and that we need each other and that we get beyond just the surfacey, yeah, we're all sinners, yeah, we all struggle, but we get beyond that to, to asking hard questions. And so when we are around each other and we confess our sin and you say, man, I'm struggling with lust, and you say, why? Why are you struggling there? Or man, I'm just, I'm overeating, I'm, I'm just eating a lot, and, and, and the question is, why? Why are you doing that? And you get beyond the surface and you look at the sin that under girds the sin and the deeper issues. And that happens when we live in community with each other because we're not doing that with a stranger. I'm not going to just open up and spill my guts with a stranger. There's got to be relationship. There has to be community. And that's part of discipleship. And if we don't have that, we'll miss that and we'll have the surfacey, very superficial kind of Christianity and kind of church where everybody just assumes that everyone else except for me has it all together. 
And that's what people think about me as the pastor. People have said that. Well, you're the guy that's up there and teaches and you've got perfect kids and, and you've got a perfect little wife and a perfect little life. And it's like, apparently, uh, you have never been to my home. <laughs> apparently, you have never heard conversations like I had the other day with Rory in the truck with my wife. Apparently, you've never been in, never been privy to some of these kinds of conversations. The other day, my wife says, I want to I wanna take the dining set over to a consignment store in Bend, Deja Vu, over in the west side of Bend. Okay, be cool, get some money for it. We don't want to haul it with us. I'm kind of tired of it anyway. It's an antique. I never really liked it that much to begin with. So... She says, I want you to take it over there. So I don't have anybody to help me. The thing is huge. It's, there's three big pieces. So Rory says, hey, I'll help you. You know, he's kind of guilted into it. <laughs> you know, he's just been kind of attached to my hip, you know, the last four weeks or so. So he comes, you know, and, and we schlep this thing out of the house, onto the trailer. We strap it down, blankets, pillows, you know, cotton balls, st- stringing the doors together so that they don't fly open. And I mean, this is an ordeal. Haul it all the way over to Ben, the west side of Ben, up in the mountains. Get there. The lady comes out. She's kind of rude. It kind of ticked me off. She's like, nah, I don't want it. Like, what do you mean you don't want it? This is a, this is a beautiful set. I'm, I don't really like it, but I mean, this is... This is a beautiful set, lady. What are you talking about? Meanwhile, the table's got like big old funky spots in it and the thing's all jacked up. And She's like, yeah, they, these just don't sell. They, yeah. So we're like back in this alley now and I got to back out and I hate backing trailers out. So, you know, Rory kind of helps me and I, I, you know, really showed him that I can back up a trailer. I looked like a stud. It was the best I'd ever done. Yeah. So then I said, well, fortunately there's plan B because my wife's parents have a home in Bend that they had as a rental, but now they're going to move back into it. And it's empty right now. And they said, just move it on in. That's at least what I thought they said. That's what my wife told me they said. Plan B, because I'm not driving all the way over to Bend with the hopes that this experienced furniture store is going to take it. So we got plan B, so we drive it, begin to drive it over even further into the mountains <laughs> to, my parent, to my in-law's house, get a phone call. Oh yeah, my mom just called and they said that actually um, you can't bring it into the house because they're going to replace the flooring in the dining room and they don't want to move it all around so um, you're going to have to put it in the garage. Okay, well, that's actually better because the garage is on the ground floor. The house, it's like one of those tri-level houses. We'd have had to go upstairs. It would have been a hassle. This is cool. Hey, no problem. Hang up. 30 seconds later. Oh, actually, the garage is crammed full of their stuff. And so what I want you to do is I want you to bring it back home. Uh, no. Not doing that. Uh, Andrea, there's, there's probably three options here. Uh, what are we going to do with this? I'll take it and I'll dump it in the woods. <laughs> That's option one. Option two, I actually like better. I'll light it on fire. <laughs> option three, I'll find a homeless guy who is in desperate need of some Duncan Fife antiques. And I'll pawn them off on him, and he'll be happy. I said, I'm not bringing these things home. There's no way. You know me better than that. I am not bringing... These, these things will never enter our property again. I, so you better figure out another plan. So we ended up bringing it to her aunt's flower store in Redmond, how flowers and antiques connect. I have no idea, but... We brought it there. Now some other people might be buying it, so it all worked out. But I'm on the phone, and I'm like, Andrea, I am not bringing them home. You're not listening. And Rory's over there like, ooh, man. (laughs) 
And, and then afterwards he said, you did a pretty good job with that. So I was only thinking like, wow, then if that was pretty good, what does he do in those situations? <laughs> but seriously, those of us that think someone else has it all together, or if you think I have it all together, or if you think Rory has it all together, you're just wrong because we, we don't. And the only thing that differentiates you and me is gifting. I, I just happen to be called to get up here and kind of make a fool of myself every week and tell you all my problems, and you don't have to do that. But we're all in this together. We're all on a journey. We're all struggling. And some of you uh, challenge me deeply. Uh, when I see just your areas of strength and I see your maturity, and it challenges me. Uh, so we, we need that. We need to be in community. And Paul had a commitment to that because he was committed to God's work and he was committed to serving the Lord with all humility, just giving his life away and total reckless abandon. God, what do you want me to do for you? And you guys, that's what I want for you. I want you to serve Jesus well. Serve him with your whole life. Have no other ambition beyond that. It, it would be like the only thing that really matters to you is serving the Lord, and then you've got some, you know, sub interests. But even those are interwoven. And so if you really like to hunt, it's it's interwoven with serving the Lord, and you you look for opportunities as to how you can serve the Lord while hunting. Or whatever it is that you enjoy doing. That, that it's, it's about Him and it's about the kingdom and it's eternity in focus. A second thing is Paul's commitment to God's Word. Paul had a deep commitment to God's Word. Look at verse 20. He says, How I kept nothing back that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And then if you skip down to verse 25, he says, And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And so Paul had a commitment to God's word. When he went there, he went there to teach them the word of God. Now, he didn't have the entire New Testament at that time. There were maybe a few books written, maybe uh, just some of the the life of Jesus had been recorded. There, there weren't really a lot of official books in the New Testament. So most of what Paul would have been doing was teaching the Old Testament. Just like Jesus did with those disciples on the road to Emmaus. You remember that story in Luke 24? A couple guys and they are clueless as to who Jesus is. And they're going back and forth and... Jesus is kind of playing games with them, like, what's going on? What happened today? And, and they're like, don't you know? You know, what kind of idiot are you? I, I would love to see the expression on their face when they actually found out he was Jesus after they kind of ridiculed him, you know. But Jesus, it says, took them from Genesis to Malachi and showed them himself in all the Scripture. And it says that their eyes were opened that Jesus was revealed to them in a way that they had never seen him before. That was the commitment that Paul had. A commitment to pointing people to Jesus in the scripture. And you guys, that's the commitment that I've wanted to have here at Calvary Chapel. Not just a commitment to teach the Bible to you. Because we can read the Bible and use it sort of as a running commentary. Just read a verse, say whatever I want to say, read another verse, say whatever I want to say, take a verse and springboard in 
to some other topic that has nothing to do with the passage at all. We have to be faithful with the text, but also we have to be faithful with the overarching theme of the Bible, which is God's plan of redemption. See, if we don't get that, then we're missing the point. And that's why Paul said in verse 27, I have not shunned or I have not avoided declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Not necessarily teaching verse by verse through the entirety of Scripture, although we're committed to that. But that's not really the point, because I've heard some verse by verse Bible studies that were terrible, that are just springboards, that are just running commentaries, that are just guys talking about fishing when they're eight, and you know, going on and on about something that that really has nothing to do with the text. That's not what Paul's talking about. It's not good enough just to read the Bible. And so if you're teaching in any capacity in this church or outside the church, if you're teaching the Word of God, be faithful to the text. And also be faithful to the overarching theme of the entire Bible which is God's plan of redemption, God's plan of making what he said was good in back to that created state. It starts with God looking at creation and saying it is good. Man screwed it up. The entire Bible points to the, the point in time where God would redeem and restore that. And then at the end, Jesus comes back and completely redeems the earth. He sets up his kingdom. And what does it say? He makes all things new. So not, as, not only is he restoring us back to his created goodness. But it's going to be better than it ever was before. That's God's plan. And if we aren't seeing that every time we open the Bible. If we aren't seeing Jesus. And we aren't seeing the gospel. Then we're missing the point. And see, too much of Christianity, too much of Bible teaching today, and even guys that are committed to the Word, even guys who are committed to teaching verse by verse, too much of it is three ways to raise better kids, four ways to have a better marriage, five ways to raise happy pets. I I mean, it's crazy. It's just moralism. It's just moralism wrapped up in Christian knees. It's nothing different than what Dr. Phil is talking about or Oprah or what you read in People magazine. It's just good thoughts, good advice with a scripture to go along with it like a fortune. It's terrible. That's not commitment to God's word. God's word is about him. Jesus said to the Pharisees who were very committed to the Bible. They worshiped the Bible. And I'm afraid that some of us can fall into that place of worshiping the Bible almost as if it's a member of the Godhead. We've got the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Bible. And that's not what it was intended to be. The Bible, you guys, is not a book to be worshiped. It's a book to point us to a God who's worthy of our worship. And so the Bible is a means by which we know God and we know Jesus. And if we don't see him, then we're missing the point. And that's the commitment that Paul had, was a commitment to see Jesus. And that's why he says, I came to you and I held nothing back that was helpful. And, And I hope that in my time here, that I've held nothing back that was helpful. Now, I've probably said some things I shouldn't have, and I probably should have held some things back I know every week, pretty much. I'm saying something I shouldn't have said. But then I do it again. So there's really no repentance going on. It's just continuing to do the same thing. But I'm just kind of out there. But hopefully, I've, I've held nothing back that was helpful. I mean, hopefully even some of the, the little extracurricular stuff has been helpful. Guys, I, hopefully I've given you some fashion tips. You know, shower, look presentable, you know, shave once in a while. It'll pay off, I guarantee you. It will pay off. It reaps dividends. 
you know, ladies, hopefully I've, I've helped you a little along the way. Just some, some extra curricular things. But in all seriousness, my desire has been to hold nothing back. And sometimes it has caused people to leave the church. And people have said, you know, well, if that's what you believe, then I'm, I, I can't sit under that because, you know, we, we believe that women should be pastors. We had a family that left the church and they said, we believe that women can and should be lead pastors and elders. And, and I'm committed to male leadership in the church. And I believe it's biblical and it has cost us families. And, and it has had um, an effect with, on me with people uh, being mad at me and not liking that. But we, we kept nothing back that was helpful but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly. And so there's a place for public proclamation just like we're doing here. The preaching of the word. There's a place for that. And then from house to house. And there's a place for smaller gatherings and home fellowships and getting together with your friends and pouring the word into your children. Paul was committed to all of those things. He was committed to God's word. A third thing that Paul was committed to was to God's will. If you look at verses 22 to 25, he says, And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy. In the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. And so Paul was committed to God's will. Here he is, he's on his way back to Jerusalem, where he knows he's going to get beat and persecuted and possibly die for his faith. And yet, in the midst of that, he calls the Ephesian elders, and he's ministering to them, and he's serving, and he's committed to God's will. He says, I go bound in the Spirit. In other words, he was so convinced that this was God's will, it was almost like he was imprisoned to it. There was nothing that he could do other than this. And you guys, if God shows you that you're to do something, then you do it. You don't let anybody deter you from that. You listen to wise counsel, and you, and, and you should be sensitive to the Lord. But when you know that God's calling you to do something, you do it. And nothing should ever get in the way of that. And there, people tried to stop Paul from going. People tried to tell him, look, you know, you're going to go there and it's going to be hard, it's going to be difficult, and you're going to get persecuted. But he knew it was what God was calling him to do. And look, he says, I'm going there not even really knowing what's going to happen. There was a huge mystery, except I do know this, that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city. Everywhere he goes, every stop he makes, he's told, it's prophesied, saying, look, chains, imprisonment, and tribulations, hard times, await you. Well, that's not cool. And a lot of people would say, well, maybe this isn't God's will. I mean, if it was God's will, then it would be really easy, right? Obviously, this can't be God's will. I mean, I'm going to get thrown in jail. I'm going to get beat. I could die. I'm out. This isn't of the Lord. And see, we make that assumption oftentimes that if things are difficult, then the Lord must not be in it. And we see just the opposite in the life of Paul. The Lord was in this. He was convinced of it. He knew it was God's will. He was committed to God's will. But it was going to be very difficult. And even though people were taking this prophecy and they were actually using it wrongly. They were taking the prophecy and saying, Paul, the Lord showed me. 
by the Holy Spirit that it's going to be hard when you get there and you might die. I don't think you should go. Paul's like, actually, I believe you that you're hearing from the Lord and I testify to that prophecy, but your application is wrong. I do need to go. I am called to this and I'm willing to die if that's what God has. He says, I know that that these things await me, but none of these things move me. None of these things. What is moving you right now? What is moving you away from the will of God and the plan of God and the call of God on your life? What, What is it that's causing you to not fulfill all that He has for you? Can you write this? That yes, I know that I'm right where I'm supposed to be, but I'm unemployed right now, but none of these things move me. Or yes, I know that I'm right where God wants me to be, but my marriage is really struggling relationally. I'm going through a lot of hard times, but none of these things move me. I will not compromise what I know God is leading me and calling me to do. What is moving you? What is it that you are allowing to throw you off course? And you have to be, as Paul, committed to the will of God. Otherwise, you'll never find it. If you're only going to achieve the will of God when it's easy, then you'll hit the will of God maybe about half the time. But we, we want to be in His will all the time. And it's not always easy. And it's not always fun to challenge somebody, to tell them something they don't want to hear. And it's not fun to move like we're doing. It's not fun. It's not easy. It's not fun if the Lord's calling you to sell your house and to downsize. Maybe this wouldn't be the greatest time to do that. In fact, just ask me. It's not a good time to sell your house. But you know what I mean. Maybe the Lord's calling you to sell your nice car and to get something else. Or He's calling you to make some sacrifices. What is it that's in the way for you? What is moving you from the will of God? May it be nothing. May you get rid of anything in your life that is deterring you from the will of God. Obviously, there's some things that you can't get rid of. If you're married, you don't get rid of your spouse so you can achieve the will of God. But you know what I mean. If you have a, a dog that's consuming your life, you know, maybe, maybe you do need to get rid of the dog. I, I don't know. Beyond your wife and your kids, everything else is pretty much expendable. Commitment to God's will. Paul was deeply committed to that. A a fourth thing that Paul was committed to was God's witness. Verses 28 to 31, Paul begins to, in a very personal way, begin to share his heart with the church. And really, God's witness is the church. The most powerful witness for the, the Lord in the gospel is the church. The most effective means of evangelism is planting churches. And I've even been asked by some people, you know, why are you going to plant a new church? Aren't there plenty of churches? And the answer to that is maybe in some places. Maybe in the south where there's like a church on every corner and if everybody in that town of 10,000 people decided to go to church, there'd be a seat for them. But there's a lot of cities, especially in the northwest, especially in fast-growing places like Fort Collins, where the rate of population growth has not been met by the rate of church planting growth. It's not even close. And so when a city grows by 50% over a decade and there's only been a handful of churches planted in that time, it's obvious that there's need for churches. And the most effective 
means of evangelism is planting churches. Because that's God's witness to the world. It's his bride. It's his love. He loves the church. And today there's a lot written about the state of the church. And I've read a lot of those books. And I agree with almost everything that is said. The church is in a lot of ways in trouble. And the church is in a lot of ways in in a horrible state. But God loves the church. And even though there may be things that I would love to see changed about the church, and even though there are a lot of churches that I just really don't like the way they do things, He loves the church. He loves the dead church filled with legalism and rules and regulations. And there's 50 people and they have 400 committees. He, he loves those churches. He loves those people. It's His witness to the world. And we ought to, as God's people, as a part of His church, as a part of His bride, we should love the church. We should be committed to the church the way Paul was. Not just criticizing it and not just saying, well, if the church would do this, then I would be committed to it. Or if the church was more like this, then I would give my money or I would give my time or I would be more involved. You cannot, as a Christian, remove yourself from the church. You are the church. The church is not a building. This isn't the church. This building has been like 15 different things. I've heard from some old timers here in Prineville. It was a bowling alley. It's been the city hall. Most recently it was a plumbing store. You know, this isn't a church. This is a building that we get to use to come and publicly worship. You're the church. You're his witness. So go be the church. Be his witness. Be the most powerful method of evangelism that there is. That is when God's people gather together in community. It doesn't matter where they meet or how it looks or how they worship. There's room for a lot of differences. Paul is committed to God's witness. He says in verse 28, Therefore, take heed to yourselves. As the church, the first thing that we need to do is take heed to ourselves, to our own heart. This doesn't mean be selfish. This means be self-examining. This means that you're a person who's not self-righteous, but you're a person who is deeply interested in being searched and known by God. That you want God to reveal to you the difficult things, the hard things. And it's not always fun. It's, it's not always enjoyable to have God peeling away the layers of your life. It's painful. And thankfully, He doesn't do it all at once. When you come to Christ and He starts getting rid of the big stuff, you know, no more mess, you know, no more sleeping with everything with two legs or maybe one leg, I don't know, but no more of that, no, no more of just the, the crazy out there stuff. No more of that. And, he, he, and then, you know, a few years, like, ah, oh, I'm doing pretty good. My mouth's kind of cleaned up and, and my lifestyle, I'm not doing drugs, I'm not sleeping around, I'm, I'm doing pretty good, I'm not getting drunk. But then he starts to peel back a little bit, and you, a little bit of pride. Ooh, ooh, I, I don't want to see that. The, the lust that's, that's there in your heart, even though you're, you're not going out and, and really acting on it, He wants to deal with it in your heart. And see, that's when it begins to get really painful and the idols start to get ripped from your life. And you have to allow Him to search you for that to happen. Take heed to yourselves. And then to all the flock. 
See, that's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, which is the most quoted verse in all the Bible, every person on the planet knows Matthew 7, do not judge lest you be judged. Every, more than John 3.16, if you ask people what's your favorite verse, you know, well, the church is filled with hypocrites. Do not judge lest you be judged, right? Well, the, the problem with that is Jesus was saying, before you make a judgment, make sure that you judge yourself. Before you judge somebody and you've got a log shooting out of your face, you've got to deal with that and then you can go and take the speck out of somebody else's eye. See, you've got to see this as a log. You've got to see your own problems as bigger than other people's problems and deal with yourself. That's what Paul's saying. Take heed to yourself, then to the flock. And of course, he's talking to the elders of this church, but it applies to all of us. That we should be looking introspectively, and it hurts, and it's painful. And man, that mirror uh, that God uses shows you some ugly stuff. If you think your face is ugly, just let God show you your heart once in a while. All of a sudden, you're like, let me look at my face all day long. Your heart, Jeremiah says, is deceitfully wicked. It's just like, oh, you know, keep that thing under wraps. But once God deals with your heart, then you can begin to help others. There's times when you've got a log shooting out of your face that it's just not appropriate for you to deal with other people's sin. Especially when it's very similar sin. And if your marriage is in shambles, then it's probably not going to be your ministry to counsel other people in their marriage problems. Because all they're going to see is, whoa! Right? But man, you deal with that, even if you have made a lot of mistakes, and certainly you have, and you deal with this, and you, you give that to the Lord, then you can be an, an amazing counselor and person that challenges people in that same way because now you've dealt with it. So it doesn't mean you, you never will, but if you're in the process of it, it's probably not the time. But that doesn't mean there may not be other areas that God is using you in. He says, take heed to yourself and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And he's talking to the elders. Another word for elder is, is an overseer. One that is looking out for the entire church. One that is shepherding the church of God. We are under shepherds as leaders. We're pointing you to the chief shepherd. Jesus is the chief shepherd. He's the senior pastor of the church. And our job as leaders is to point you to him is to hear from the shepherd, as Jesus said in John chapter 10, my sheep know my voice. And so, as leaders, we should be hearing his voice and then taking you to where Jesus is. It's really not that hard of a job. I mean, you got to kind of be sensitive. you got to listen to the Lord. But the reality of it is, is like, here you go, Jesus. Here they are. And you just got to lead people to Jesus and lead people past yourself. And when it really gets hard in ministry, what's really difficult in leadership if, is if you're trying to be Jesus. Then it gets really hard because you're not, and I'm not. And that becomes apparent really fast. So leading people past yourself to Jesus, that's what it means to shepherd the flock, shepherd the church, which he purchased with his own blood. And so there again we see the importance of the church. This is his bride. He loves it. And these men and women that are criticizing the church. And writing books about the church. Albeit I agree with much of what is written. They need to be careful. Because this is the bride of Christ. And I mean hey. I can get angry with my wife. And I can criticize my wife. But if you do that, then I might have to go, you know, bug Nucky on you, right? I'm not, I'm not going to put up with that. Nope, nobody's going to talk down to my wife. Nobody's going to criticize or hurt my wife in any way. So we got to be careful. This, 
the church is Jesus' bride. He died for it. He gave his life for the church. I don't want to be putting myself in a position where Jesus is getting ticked at me because I'm criticizing his bride. So we have to be careful of that. It's a commitment to God's witness, to his church, to his bride that he gave himself for and that he cares so much about the local church. We should be committed to that. The fifth thing, a fifth commitment is a commitment to God's way. Commitment to God's way, a way in which God works, a way in which he acts, the, the way in which God functions. We ought to be committed to that. And what is that? Well, Paul sums it up for us in verses 32 to 35. He kind of is giving his parting shot, his last thoughts. He says, so now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. I commend you to God. I, I'm leaving you to him. I, I started this work, but I'm leaving it in his hands. And, and man, that's, that's what I'm just doing. It's just leaving it to the Lord. As much as I'm leaving it to Rory and to the elders of this church, I'm leaving it to the Lord, putting it in his hands. This is his church. It always has been his church. He's, he's just allowed me to be a part of it. He's let me think over the last seven years that I'm in charge. But he's in charge. He, he's the senior pastor of this church. He's the planter of this church and the sustainer of this church and the savior of this church. It's him. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. Be strong in grace, Paul would tell Timothy. If we can be strong in grace, It'll take us a long way. Be strong in grace. I commend you to that. Which is able to build you up or to edify you and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And then he begins to get personal. He says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. I haven't coveted your money. I haven't coveted your clothes. Apparently they weren't fashion aficionados there in Ephesus. Paul was like, ah, no temptation there. Really care for your clothes a whole lot. No, what Paul's saying is, I didn't want your stuff. I wasn't looking for gifts. I I wasn't looking for you to, to bless me. I wanted to bless you. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul sums up everything that he had just said to them, really sums up the entire Bible by saying it is more blessed to give than to receive. You guys, we serve a giving God. That means as a church, we should be a giving church. That means as people, you should be giving people. Now, many of you are just amazingly selfless in this area of giving. Giving of your finances, giving of your time, giving of your talents. Some of you just challenge me deeply in in your commitment in giving and following the words of Jesus, which by the way, these aren't recorded anywhere other than here, so they must have been passed down uh, verbally to Paul. But certainly this was Jesus' life. It's how he lived his life. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. I I came to give of myself. Paul put it like this in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, speaking of God the Father, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? We serve a giving God. And that means we need to be giving people. And some of you get that, and some of you don't. And the way I know that some of you don't is because we have some really huge needs in the church that aren't being fulfilled. We have 
Sunday school workers and children's ministry workers who are serving five, six weeks in a row without a break. Without ever being in service, serving both services. We have people on Wednesday nights who are serving tirelessly and when they can't make it on a particular night, they can't even find a sub. And then if they do find a sub, the person doesn't even show up. They say they're going to do it and then they don't show. It shouldn't be that way. We have right now the, the biggest financial need that we've ever had as a church. Now, a lot of that's due to the economy. And I know that many of you are just deeply struggling financially. And the Lord is teaching you things. And some of you were not on mission with your money before. And God is teaching you many things now in the absence of your money. And hopefully you've learned to hold things a little looser. But most of us have some expendable income. Most of us are making some money. And God is calling us to give and to give sacrificially. Whatever it is. I mean, I know I'm not starving to death. Can't you tell? I mean, there's a lot of things I haven't cut yet. And, and what is he calling you to give, to sacrifice? Because it's more blessed to give than to receive. Do you believe that? That's not just a cute little jingle to say at Christmas time. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, that sounds, it sounds cool and it's very Christmassy. And, and, you know, for about a month out of the year, we believe that. We feel compelled to give to homeless people and we get manipulated into dropping some money into the guy that's ringing the bell, you know. How can you not? But it's, it's 12 months out of the year. It's seven days a week, 24 hours a day that we're called to give. And when we have that mindset and that attitude, it changes everything. My time is not my time. I'm never off. Never not on duty serving the Lord, even if I'm going on vacation. doesn't mean I'm checking out. doesn't mean all of a sudden I hate people. I mean, how, how can you do that? How can you be the person that's just serving everybody at church and then go somewhere else and you don't care about people all of a sudden? That's just weird. You know, I go to other churches and and I end up praying for people or I end up talking to somebody and sometimes i just want to go like on a vacation i just want to sit there and i don't want to do anything but i know better than that i know that wherever i'm at i'm a pastor i'm not just the pastor of you guys when i'm at the store i'm a pastor in this community wherever i'm at i'm called to do that not just for the people that give money here or that come and take up a seat? Is that what it's limited to? Am I only a pastor for, for those people and I don't care about anybody else? See, that's the kind of mindset that God wants us to have because it's more blessed to give, to give of your time. Some of you don't have a job right now. 25% unemployment in Crook County. You know what's interesting about that is we haven't seen like a huge jump in Needs being met around here. Some of you have a lot of time to give. You're probably thinking, what am I doing with my time? I don't even work right now. What am I doing with my time? Some of you have money. And yet you're hoarding it or you're holding on to it or you're thinking, I don't have any extra. But then when you begin to examine your life, you realize, I do have extra and I spend it on myself. See, if we really believe that it's more blessed to give than to receive, it would change the whole face of the church. We wouldn't have to beg for people to help in children's ministry. It wouldn't be falling on the same 10, 15, 20 people to do almost everything around here. That wouldn't be the case. We wouldn't have a, a shortfall. We wouldn't have to be 
pulling money out of here to, to pay this bill and pulling money out of that to pay that bill. And we, we wouldn't have to be doing that. And I, I've been committed as a pastor to not focusing on money. We don't pass the plate. We don't talk about it. We don't have a little plaque on the wall that says last week's offering, you know, this this week's budget, you know, this kind of thing. You know, here's our shortfall, you know. We don't do that. We're not trying to make it all about money. But in some ways, I wonder if I've done a little bit of a disservice to you because you can come here and not give of your time, not give of your money, not give of your talents, and, and there's really no accountability for that. And it falls on others who are just serving themselves into the ground. And it shouldn't be that way. And others who are sacrificing deeply so that your kids can be ministered to, so that there is food on Wednesday nights for the barbecue, so that the lights are on, so that we have nice sound equipment and we have comfortable chairs. Some have sacrificed in huge ways. And man, you know who you are and, I, and I'm so thankful for you guys. But some of you need to be challenged today. And see, I can, I can say this because it's my last Sunday. You know, I can get away with it a little bit. Some of you need to be on mission with your money, with your time, with your gifts. And you know who you are. And you know what God's calling you to do. And you need to make a commitment like Paul said, purposing in your heart that I'm going to give. And not just giving what you decide to give to the church, but being sensitive to give sacrificially to other things that have nothing to do with you. See, we give to the church and then we get to enjoy the things the church offers. We get to be a part of that. But God is calling you then to give above and beyond to support children in other countries who have no food. To support orphanages like the one that Kathy Vaughn oversees. To support church plants, maybe like the bridge that we're going to do in another city that really you'll never be a part of. It'll never bless you. See, that's where it becomes sacrificial. That's where you are now giving to something that you don't get anything back. And you get to really see it's more blessed to give than to receive. What's God calling you to do? If we really believe this, it would change the face of the church. It would change ministry. People would be able to serve with joy. Everybody would have their niche. Every part doing its share, Paul says in Ephesians. Man, there's nothing better than that when you're the thumb and you get to function as the thumb instead of as the liver. You know, the thumb trying to be a liver is kind of tough. He's like, you know, I'm a thumb, but I guess I'll filter out all this crap that's flowing through here. I'm not really good at it, but I'll try it. I'm going to do my best. And it's just kind of, you know, it's kind of tough. If you're a nose, you're meant to be a smeller. It's, it's pretty tough if, if you then are asked to be an ear. But a lot of you are doing that. A lot of you are serving in areas that you're just really not passionate about or maybe not even gifted in, but you know there's a need and you're willing to do it. But man, there's somebody there who is way better at it than you and could do a better job, and you know that, and you're just waiting for them to take your spot so that you can do that thing that you're really passionate about. And then the church would function without burnout, and it would function effectively and smoothly, and people would go, man, that's the bride of Christ. That's the way it's supposed to look. Some of you are hiding your talents under bushels as... Jesus said, you know, you're hiding. You don't want anybody to know that you actually do play an instrument. 
And you're like, I am not telling anybody because the last church I was in, they roped me into that and I never got off the stage for 12 years. Some of you have just amazing gifts with kids and you're like, I'm not showing anybody that because I know how it works. If I get thrown back there, I'm never getting out. Some of you have gifts with technology and computers. Some of you are just great servants and you love to clean and and you love to, to make things look good and you have a real eye for that. And, and yet, you don't want to serve because you've got too much going on at home. And you notice things, but you're not saying anything because you know how it is around here. If you say something, you're going to do it. You just got yourself a job. So you're just like, I don't notice anything around here. But that's not how it should be. Paul closes, actually Luke closes, recording, saying, And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. Please don't do that today. Well, you can. I mean, you know. You know, some of you good-looking guys and I was going to say girls, but then that sounds weird. But guys sounds weird too. Okay, just my wife, all right? You guys all go home. My wife and I will kiss right here. Sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And then they accompanied him to the ship. Guys, I don't really know how to close other than saying I love you guys. It's, it's been a fun ride. It's been a privilege. Why don't we stand? Um, I wanted to have Rory come up. We'll pray for him. Pray for Lin- Rory and Lindsay. The, it, the elders that are here want to come up. Um, if the worship band wants to come, we'll close with a song as well.